I encourage you to take a Bible and turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 will be our passage that we're looking at this morning. John 21 verses 1 through 14. Let's pray and then let's read this passage of Scripture from John's account. Gracious Father in heaven, we come to you and we do ask as we have in song, we ask that you would, through the power of your Spirit, quicken our minds and our hearts to receive the Word of God, to hear it, to think on it, to respond to it in faith, and to see you for who you are, and to respond to you in worship. That God, you would be exalted in this place today and in our lives as we leave this place. That the church might be radiant and glorious as you have called it to be through your Son, through the work of your Spirit and the Word. God, we love you and we love your Word and we desire to be students not only of your Word, but Lord of you. To have time with you that we might grow in our love and adoration for you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious and most holy name. Amen. Amen. We're in John chapter 21 this morning, verses 1 through 14. It says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Seems sort of a funny interchange there. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. That's to swim to shore, not to drown. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went on board and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You saw how it began and ended with Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples and it ends with this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. That will be important as we go through this passage. You see, change can be good. 
I like change. You probably like some change. Some people like it less than others. Where I come from, change isn't a dearly loved thing. little town of 600 people, they sort of pride themselves in things being as they have been. They don't care much for strangers coming in and turning things around. Let's keep things as they are. And because of that, they, you know, that in part, they are still the same town or dying, as the case may be, that they were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Change is good. But when there's too much change, when there's too much transition, when there's too many difficulties in life, or they're so difficult that that kind of change is tough. Or you go through major transitions, or you're facing an uncertain future for a number of reasons. It is mentally, emotionally, and spiritually helpful to have stability. To have certainty in the things that are most essential. And in order to have hope that things will turn out okay. This is especially true in relationships, isn't it? If you're a kid, and you've blown it, you've disobeyed mom and dad and you've gotten disciplined, you want to know things are going to be okay, right? You, you realize you, you've been through it, it's been tough, but you want to know, Daddy, is, it, is everything okay? Mommy, is everything okay? If you've ever done something and offended or hurt your spouse, you, you may be looking, hey, is everything okay? You may have made it right, you may have asked for forgiveness, and forgiveness has been given, but you're still wanting to know, is it okay? Are we okay? Are we good? Right? And that's a question that, that I think is before us in part in this passage this morning. Because it's never more true than in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the believer. Maybe you've fallen into sin. Maybe you've been struggling through sin for some season. You've surrendered to your desires and your fears and you've failed and maybe incredibly deeply it seems that your failures have changed everything you may feel that there's no way back there's no hope for you you're alone and it's going to stay that way there's no way back well dear friend that's not the truth the truth is that there is an unchanging lord jesus christ who is readied in compassion and grace to lead you and to provide hope for you that you desperately need in Him as the sovereign Master and Lord. That's the truth. That's the truth that we need to see. And I believe that resounding reality is what we witness in John 21. We're not going to look at the second half of the passage. We'll do that next week. But this week, I think we get to see the beginnings of that. We get to see the disciples experiencing that reality. As a matter of fact, many have questioned why this passage, this this chapter is even included. They say, man, look at the end of of, of chapter 20. Look how beautifully that summarizes the whole book of John. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name, the end, signed John. Great place to end. But He doesn't end there. And some argue that, well, there's a number of reasons. Maybe somebody later added this and John didn't even know that this was going to be added. Um, you know, it was a common thing in this day at the end of a letter or the end of a, a piece of literature to write an epilogue. 
An epilogue was there to wrap up some loose ends, to say, hey, there's a few things left that maybe you're wondering about, okay? And you've got to remember that this was written sometime later, right? So things were sort of being perpetuated in the, in the culture and maybe in within, within the church and going, hey, what about this? What about that? So John writes this account and says, here's a few more things you ought to know. It's important that you hear these things. Things like the issue of Peter's denial. We've not heard how that wrapped up yet. Yeah, Jesus appeared to the disciples twice, but he didn't mention that. Is Peter okay? Is everything good with Peter and Jesus? Well, and you got to remember, he wasn't the only one. The others fled. Right? They ran. Are we okay? Yeah, Jesus has shown up, but we've heard nothing more about that. Uh, the question may have been raised in that culture, has been raised by others. Had Jesus really shown up? Had he, or was that just a vision, these guys, a group vision, as if that's possible? A vision by several people had by all of them at the same time in the same way. Did they just have a vision or did Jesus really come and spend time with them? I think it addresses that here. And even the question of whether or not the resurrected Jesus is the same. Is he the same as he was before he was crucified and then resurrected? Or is he somehow different in some substantial way in nature or character? You see, with the resurrection, everything had changed since the upper room. Except Jesus. Jesus' previous two appearances to the disciples that were recorded in John 20 happened in Jerusalem, and they happened behind closed doors, and we hear, we get just a little bit of information. Okay, we get enough to say this was the risen Lord, at least as, as you've seen behind closed doors. And he met with Thomas because Thomas doubted, and he let Thomas touch his hands and, and feel his side just to confirm that he was indeed who he says he was. Well now, he's up north, in Galilee, on Lake Tiberias, or the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, whatever you want to call it. But John makes it clear that this resurrection, this appearance, was indeed the real thing. And I think that it's woven all through here. And I think the fishing thing sort of just drives it home. I, I think it is going to, in a number of ways, help us see that John is saying, this is the real deal. Again, we mentioned here in verse 1 and in verse 14 that he, he notes that this is another revelation. This is another appearance of Jesus specifically to the disciples. You see, this had to be the real thing. John had to admit another night of fishing failure. For a fisherman, that doesn't just happen. Okay, you know, I've done it enough that I really hate to come home and admit I've been skunked again, either in hunting or fishing. All right. It's not a fun thing to do. Right, Ray? Okay. You just don't enjoy it. John had to admit another night of fishing failure. This isn't the first time. Remember, in Luke chapter five, verses one through thirty nine, this had happened before. The, they, and so if you compare the two instances out of, John, out of Luke five and now out of John twenty one, you have both in each one of them a night of fishing failure. Okay, so some people, because of that, say, oh, they're really the same instance. John just gets it a little confused, or Luke got it confused, and it's out of order, whatever. Oh, wait, that's where they're similar? There are plenty of differences. For example, in Luke 5, there's no exact number of fish given. Luke obviously was not a fisherman. He was a doctor, 
Okay? <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Galen, Galen, Galen uh, Kelton there. He combined his first and last name. That was nice. But uh, I think he may be a fisherman, but this doctor was no fisherman because he would have given you size, weight, or at least the amount. In John 21, you get 153 fish. In Luke 5, the nets began to break. Not so in John 21. As a matter of fact, you could argue that that was one of the miracles here, that the nets did not break. In Luke 5, Christ instructed them from the boat. He went out with them and in the boat with them, he instructed them. However, in John 21, he instructed them from the shore and they didn't even know it was him because it was early in the morning at dusk when it's hard to see a hundred yards to be able to identify. In Luke 5, Peter said, get away from me because he understood he was a sinful man. But now as one who really understood he was a sinful man, Peter puts on his clothes and jumps in to go swim to Jesus. It's pretty interesting. Both the similarities and the differences. They are two separate instances, but John had to record a second night of fishing failure. One that was similar to what we had before, but very different. See, what is the resounding message we get from this? John wanted his readers to be clear on this fact. Jesus Christ was truly risen and unchanged in the core of who he was. As the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in that, we can find great comfort. We can find great help and confidence. And I think for the early church, this was important. To know that this same Jesus, this unchanging Savior, still provides rest and joy and peace for His disciples. And that's what we're going to see today. The unchanging Savior still provides rest, joy, and peace for His disciples. In the eternal sense... And in the disciples' understanding of Jesus, everything had changed, but nothing had changed. Everything was different in their minds about this Jesus, but things were incredibly familiar. So, how was Jesus unchanged? That's at the core of what we want to look at this morning. This was a real event, and it really demonstrated his unchanging nature. So there are three things that I think we can see about how Jesus is unchanged, and I don't think they're small things. I think they are significant. And I think they minister to the hearts of the believer who is struggling, who is overtaken in sin. I think they minister to the hearts of the the person out there who is wondering, is this Jesus the real thing? And if He is, who really is He? And so this morning, I pray... That you will hear, you'll be encouraged, you'll be challenged, you'll be comforted, and that you'll find joy, peace, and rest as a result of these truths. So let's look at the first one. First of all, the disciples witnessed on this morning that Jesus is still graciously compassionate. Graciously compassionate. The disciples had previously witnessed Jesus being compassionate to many. He had healed the blind and the sick. He had ministered to widows in their distress. He had, he had helped those who were accused of sin to know His forgiveness. He had raised the dead. And He had put up with them. He had compassionately dealt with their bickering and their silliness and their misunderstandings and patiently worked with them. They'd, they'd witnessed His compassion the first uh, first hand they'd experienced his compassion and then 
They wouldn't even stay awake in the garden. They experienced his compassion and they fled. Yet, here Jesus is on the shore. You know, in the Old Testament, our elder Steve Kincaid read of this steadfast love, this loving kindness, this compassion of the Lord. And listen to it again from Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And then listen to this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We'll come back to this in a moment. But do you remember what Jesus said to them when he showed up? Children, have you caught anything? As a father cares for his children. You see, Jesus compassionately met these disciples where they were. In the normal course of life, even after or even in the midst of their failures. The disciples had been waiting. Jesus had told them to go to Galilee. He told them a specific mountain where they would actually eventually meet. They weren't in Galilee because they were just running. At this point, they'd already met up with Jesus and he'd sent them on ahead. But he didn't tell them specifically what to do. He didn't tell them what not to do. But we know this. A lot of us want to beat these guys up because they went fishing. In a short time, in the beginning of Acts, Jesus is very clear. I don't want you going anywhere but Jerusalem until you have the Holy Spirit that I'm going to send. So I have a hard time beating the guys up right here that they aren't out on mission. And that, I think, is one of the most common themes you hear when you get to this point. And I think we've got to be careful. We've got to take all of Scripture into account as we read this. I don't know their hearts. I don't know the reason why they were fishing. I do think it was a great thing to do. Fishing is a lot of fun, but for them it was a, a lot more than that. It may be for them it was merely, i got to pay some bills. And fishing was a quick way to pay bills. You fish at night, you catch the fish, and you take them to market in the morning to sell them. Okay? A quick buck. It helps pay for some food. I mean, they were seven hungry men. Right? Only the attitude of their hearts could tell, really, where they were. If they wanted to give up on the business of serving Jesus, it was a bad thing. If, however, they were providing for themselves and those near to them, until Jesus told them what was next... It was a wise thing. So regardless of their motivation or their lack thereof, here they were fishing and waiting, and Jesus shows up at dawn, which is why they don't recognize him. A lot of questions about, well, is this because he changed his appearance or whatever? Folks, it's dawn. Some of you don't know what that is. That's when the sun comes up, okay? And the sun comes up, and you can actually begin to have light. If you've ever gone duck hunting, you can start hunting a half hour before, before sunrise. Well, that's sort of in that hour where it's a little bit dark. It's a little bit hard to see, especially 100 yards. That's the length of a football field, okay? You know, IU quarterbacks can't see a third that far. So, just, you know, I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> He's leaving. He's an IU fan. No. <laughs> The, the fact of the matter is, is they, they just couldn't see him. 
But here they were, and Jesus shows up, calling them children affectionately, and inquiring to their, as to their catch. He didn't need to ask. Jesus knew, right? He knew whether they had caught fish or not. And he doesn't chide them or ask them, what do you guys think you're doing? What are you out here doing? Why? He just simply asked, do you have any fish? It's a natural question for anybody to ask a fisherman. It's like if you're out in your yard washing your car and someone goes by, what do they say? Come on, you can do mine next, right? Or if you're painting, maybe you've never painted or washed your car. That's another problem. If you're painting, what do they say? You missed a spot. Okay, you missed a spot. And if you're going, if you're out fishing and you see someone out in the boat, what do you say? Any luck? Catch anything? And they may hold up a stringer. They say, oh, a few or what? It's just a natural question. It seems though to me, Jesus' question is packed because he knows the answer and he asks it anyway. It's sort of like, hey guys, how's that working out for you? How's it working out? Not in a condemning way, but you're ready to move on. You're ready to get going. And in the light between dawn and full day, though they did not recognize him, when he said, hey, throw the nets out on the right side. And their desperation, they did so. You see, whether our failure is denial or striving in our own strength, Jesus meets us there. In that place. But he doesn't merely call us to come as we are. But to come away from who we are. In our own strength. And striving to follow him. And become who he created us to be. You see in this our Lord is unchanged. In his compassion Jesus meets meets us where we are. But he never leaves us where we are. He's far too compassionate for that. He won't leave us in our misery, in our sin. He desires to call us away, which is what he ultimately does here. So what's the plea to us? To come and delight in the, uh, find the delight of submission to our Lord's gracious and kind commands. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Listen to this. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. You see, He doesn't give the command in order to burden us. He's good. He's kind. And He's gracious. It's like a parent who says, Don't go out in the street. It's not mean. It's gracious. It's kind. It's thoughtful. It's loving. It's compassionate. And in that way, so are the commandments of the Lord. Have you grown weary? Are you overwhelmed with your fallenness and your sin? Listen to what the psalmist says as he commends the compassion and mercy of God. And he says, you'll find rest for your soul. But you, O Lord, Psalm 86.15, but you, O Lord, are full of compassion. And by the way, when God is full of something, He is infinite. He never gets less. He stays full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. And Psalm 145, 8 and 9, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great 
in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. In other words, all His works are superintended by His tender mercy. So I call to you, come to the compassionate one. His faithfulness is never ending, and His loving kindness, His compassion, it never fails. You see, Jesus is the compassionate Savior. You can run to Him, or in the case of Peter, you can swim to Him and find rest. You can find rest. But Jesus was more than just a compassionate man. Had the crucifixion robbed him of his divinity? Was he now just a gracious, kind, compassionate man? A fatherly figure showing up on the shore to give them instructions from afar and to just care for them. You see, there are all kinds of myths and rumors and and this is one more that can be dispelled. Because another thing we find here was that he is not something less than what he had been. John makes it impeccably clear that Jesus is still... The sovereign master. He is the, the compassionate savior and he is the sovereign master. So what happened? What happened when Jesus said, hey, children, throw the nets out on the right side of the boat. Matter of perspective, right side or your right side or my right side. They knew it was the other side, right? So what happened? Success. Why? Well, he'd seen a boil out there. He saw the fish, you know, really moving. That's what one commentator um, said. This, he said this was not a miracle. This was just Jesus seeing from afar this boil. So the same author is the same one who said that they couldn't see Jesus and make him out from the shore and recognize him. But he saw a boil from out there. Come on now. Either way, it's a miracle. Right? <laughs> he, folks, he knew. He, whether he knew there was a boil of fish there or whether he directed that, those fish, which is, seems to be pretty clear because of, the, of John's response in just a moment. They had success. Why did this happen? Because he was and is still supreme and sovereign over creation. From zero to 153 in a matter of seconds. That's some seriously improved fishing, I think. I'll take that any day of the week. Many times I go fishing, I would just go from zero to one and be happy, right? Zero to one. This would not be a night like they dreaded with just stories of the ones that got away. But why does John mention 153? Why? In the previous thing with Luke, they didn't, right? Luke did not give a number. He just said, man, and so many fish that they burst the nets and man, it was crazy. They thought they were going to sink the boat. Well, I want you to listen to some of the suggestions relating to this 153. Charlotte knows that I came out of my office just fairly perturbed after this. Okay? Um, Muttering under my breath and, you know, I think more than under my breath. One man, and these guys, what, what kills me is these are names that, I'm not even going to read them, but they are names of people from distant past that you'd go, wow. I put some credibility in that. But I I think we missed the point. Here's one. If you can follow these, you're better than me. I don't even know how they came up with them. Here's one meaning of the number 153. 100 stands for the entirety of the Gentiles to be gathered to Christ. I guess 100%. 50 for the remnant of Israel who will be gathered in. 3 for the Trinity to whose glory all things are done. And you come up with, voila, 153. 
Jerome, he sort of had a simple explanation. Jerome said that in that sea, there were 153 kinds of fishes and that the catch is one that includes every kind of fish. Therefore, symbolizing the universality of the church, that the whole church will be brought in. Okay. The problem is that there were more known species in that day. There were specifically 157. So that can't be right. So then (laughs) there's a few missing. Sorry, those of you that weren't in that 153. Then there was one. This is the hardest of all. I don't even, my dad dad is a mathematician and I think he can appreciate this, but I don't. Ten is the number of the law, ten commandments, you got that. Seven is the number of grace, because the gifts of the Spirit are sevenfold. Okay, you following me? That ten plus seven is seventeen. Then, if you take... Okay, this is where it gets a little tricky. So, if the 153 is the sum of all the figures, one plus two plus three plus four, up to seventeen... Thus, 153 stands for all those who either by the law, the ten, or by grace, the seven, have been moved to Christ. That's a lot of work. I don't know how you do that. Here's my proposal. Maybe we take scripture and we look at it and go to John's point. Was this a real event? I believe so. And as a real event, do you think fishermen, seven of them to be precise, would count the number of fish in that net? Oh, you better believe it. Some of you do fishing with your sons. You know they're counting. And you are too. Because you want to know who catches the most fish. Right? This was a real event and it was demonstrated by the real number of fish they really caught. I fished a lot. And I've, I've, I think there are about three ways that I know to, to measure, and I mean in reality, not with fishermen stories, to measure the actual catch. You can measure the longest fish and, and, and compare that. You count the number of fish, or you try to weigh the heaviest fish. I can tell you the heaviest fish I ever caught was an amberjack in the Gulf. I can remember the moment clearly. I remember the big ones that got away, but I remember that one I caught. I remember the largest bass I ever caught. And I remember what pond I was on. And I remember the, the purple plastic worm that I caught it on. Okay? It was the last one I had. They were hitting the purple really good that day. Okay? I remember where I caught the most fish. On Arbuckle Lake in Oklahoma, catching crappie at night. These guys, this was a real thing for them. And I also wonder if there wasn't a little bit of this. I wonder if John hadn't been part of the previous one and counted those, or Peter, or the other guys, and were wondering, uh, did Jesus break his record? <laughs> hey, I, I think sometimes we remove ourselves so far from these guys that we think like they weren't real people. These were real people, that's my point. They were real people. This was a real experience. And these moments recalled, these moments recalled for them the reality of what had happened before. And so what did, how did John respond to that? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And what does Peter do? Well, what you do when you're going to jump in, you put your clothes on, right? We'll get to that in a moment. But when John says it's the Lord, what is he saying? What is it that he's identifying? He doesn't say it's Jesus. 
He says it's the Lord, which come from, comes from the Greek kurios or kurios, meaning Lord or Master. And the thought behind that word is the idea of supremacy and authority. You see, he identified exactly who this was based on what he did. This was a miracle. Jesus wasn't merely going, Ah, I see some fish over there, throw it over there. This was a miracle and John knew it was a miracle and therefore he said, It's the Lord. And Peter immediately got it. Why is Jesus the Lord? Jesus is the Lord because he is God. He is divine. He is supreme. And therefore, because he is supreme, he is our Lord. He is our rightful master. The question is, have you submitted to him as your master? And Peter, his response, we've sort of been foreshadowing it. His response to this claim that it's the Lord. It was his exclamation point to go, yes, it is. It is. And I'm all in. Why do you put your clothes on, Peter? You're jumping in the water. It's going to be early morning. It's going to be cold when you get out. Have them bring your clothes to you at the shore. You see, it's interesting. In Jewish religion, it is a religious thing to greet someone. A greeting is a religious act. That's why it's so important in the idea of, host, of hospitality and such. That was a big deal. It's a religious thing. And you did no religious act basically undressed. They would have had basically a loincloth on as they were fishing, working hard out in the water in, 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 through the night. And so he was not going to go to the Lord in undressed fashion. He'd rather go wet because he wanted to be the first to greet him. I don't doubt that there may have been in Peter's mind the, the idea of I'm unclean. I can't, I'm already open and exposed before this man because he told me the things that I would do and I did them. He predicted my denials and I did them. He already sees my soul. I don't need to be bare before him on the beach. And if there is not a sense of that when Jesus, when, when you come face to face with Jesus, then you don't know Jesus. You don't understand him as Lord and sovereign of the universe. The one who controls the fish. The one who controls the stars and the universe. He is the Lord. He is supreme. And while he is the compassionate one and he calls us to come, he is the Lord and he is our master and he is to be submitted to. And that is the call. When he got to the shore, Peter was directed by Jesus. And how did he respond? Without delay. When Jesus says, go get some fish, what did Peter do? He ran and he got fish because this was his Lord. Jesus is still the good and sovereign master. Submit to him and find joy. These guys, that's, that was Peter. Peter, you can accuse him of a lot of things, but I think Peter, when he heard it was the Lord, I think he for a moment forgot himself. Like he forgot that he denied this was Jesus. And look what he just did. He's back to doing his stuff. And he jumped in and he, with joy, went to his, his master. You know, many of us have stories of our tyrannical bosses, critical coaches, unloving parents, cold spouses. You see, this is a result of living in a, a sinful world. And a result of sinful humans having authority over other sinful human beings. Selfishness, greed, and pride, and brokenness lead to anger and disappointment and deep hurt. Jesus is none of these. For he's not only the sovereign master, 
But he's also what we see next, the infinite servant. Because it's one thing to say he's compassionate. Oh, okay, he's coming out to, to, to care for these guys. And to show that he is a man of forgiveness. Oh, but look, he's showing himself to be the sovereign Lord. He's in control. Great. But let's get down to the brass tacks. Let's get down to where these guys really are. They've been fishing all night. They're wet. They're tired. And now they're really tired because Peter's jumped out of the boat and left these guys to bring the, the you know, 153 large, by the way, it did mention that, right? Fishermen. They were large fish, not just little tiny fish. Large fish to shore. But you know what? We find when they arrive on shore, we see that Jesus is still the infinite servant. Jesus is still the infinite servant. And he gives a couple of memory triggers that I think help us and them see this. First of all, look at the coal and the fire. Do you remember where was the last time in the book of John that we heard about coal and a fire? I'm not giving out gift cards, but does anybody know? When was the last time? What's that? Peter's denial. Peter's denial in, in the chief, in the chief priest courtyard, it talks about in, in John 18 that Peter was out there after Jesus' arrest, warming himself with the servant girls and the other servants and soldiers around a coal fire. Interesting that John notes that specifically. He doesn't just say a fire, fire. He talks about the coal and fire. So the coal and fire remind us of the high priest's courtyard and Peter's denials. After Jesus' arrest, when Peter stood warming his hands beside that fire of coals, he was apart from Jesus. But Jesus, it says later, he looked out and saw him. And Peter wept. Peter ran away and wept. Now, with another fire, and with coals, we have Jesus serving Peter and his disciples. In a different way, before he was preparing to go to the cross and serve them by taking upon him their sins. Now, here he is, he's meeting the needs of these tired, hungry, wet fishermen. Just wanting to be with them and care for them. So we have Jesus as servant, he serves them at the cross. And now he's serving them in a very tangible, real way. This was a real event. Hungry, wet fishermen need food, right? And Jesus fed them. The second memory trigger is that of the breaking of the bread. And breaking of bread ought to remind us all of the Last Supper, the upper room, right? Which the last time they broke bread together, as far as we know, was in the upper room. And we recall there Jesus' service and his predicting of Peter's denials. You see a common thread here? You've got Jesus' service. And you've got Peter's denials. We're going to deal with Peter's denials next week. Okay. But here we see Jesus serving. The sovereign Lord of the universe had washed their feet. The sovereign Lord of the universe, the infinite Savior, the compassionate Savior, the sovereign Lord had gone to the cross. And he served them by taking on him, their sin, their shame. Their penalty. You see, that's what he came to do. Mark tells us in chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, our, for many. In our humanity, we look for excuses not to serve. 
Because we get tired. We have limited time. We have limited attention. Limited focus. We have things that perturb us and other things that we like. So we'll, we're, in, we're finite in our service. But you see, the infinite Savior, the infinite servant, never needs excuses. While we are too tired or busy, our Lord never slumbers nor sleeps. He never grows weary. And in that unchanging servant, we can find hope and we can find help and we can find confidence. His infinite supply is not diminished in any way as he continues to give grace upon grace, kindness after kindness and love upon love. His grace and kindness and mercy, as the psalmist said, are without end. And you see, we need to get back to understanding that it's out of his supply that we serve, not our supply. And when we serve out of his supply, we can say yes to a whole lot more things and rest and and not be so caught up in us. Because Lord, if you would have me do this, I'll do it. But you're going to have to supply the means. You're going to supply the resources. You're going to supply the energy. You have to supply space for me to do it. But I'm going to trust you in this. The infinite serving Savior never, never tires and will supply all our needs according to His riches in glory. You see, the infinite servant always provides what we cannot find in anyone or anything else. That includes ourselves. We think that we can run to some person. We can run to some planning schedule. Have our planner all worked out. We think that if we just have the right circumstances, if we have enough time or money, that, that, that we'll have what we need. But you see, there will not, you will not have what we need without the infinite servant. Psalm 46 says this, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress Selah. His presence is what we can count on. You see, Jesus is still the infinite servant. Draw near to him and find rest and refreshment. As these guys walked up on the beach tired and hungry, they didn't just need food. They needed him. And they got him. They got him. They got to have Breakfast on the shore with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who was the Savior of their souls. And they spent that time there that morning. And don't you think they lived that moment over and over and over again in the years to come? This had to have been deeply encouraging to them. So what do we take away? How should we respond to John's account from Lake Tiberias? First, come to him. Draw near to Him, and He'll draw near to you. Come to Him and find rest, find joy, find peace, find refreshment. Cease from your striving. Cease from your running on your own pace and your own plan and run to Him. And He bids you come. Second, follow Him. Follow Him in loving compassion and service. You see, we're surrounded by people that are hurting. People that feel as though they are down and out. They have no hope. They feel no one cares or would even notice if they were gone. Yet, Christ 
wants us, as the body of Christ, to come to them. We are the body of Christ. To go and to bear this compassionate love and service with the gospel of Jesus Christ, both loving and sharing the truth to those in need. You can serve them compassionately, meeting their needs while lovingly sharing the gospel. Think of this. Uh, Steve Kester shared a few moments ago the new neighbor ministry. A way to lovingly go to your neighbors. That's just the foot in the door. To be able to love them and care for them and genuinely get involved in their life. That's just the first step. First of all, the gospel tract is there. Second of all, you can carry the gospel to them. Our children's church, there was an announcement this morning that children's church needs help. Men, we'd love to have you help turn the tide. Are you, you concerned about the next generation? Well, be involved in the next generation beyond even your own. Retired men, maybe, or, or younger men who you, you don't have kids anymore. They're gone. They're like mine. They're moving on. Go, say, go, go compassionately love them. We have a care ministry. The care ministry needs your help. You know what help they need? They'd love to have you come and serve with them. They need to know who they can go visit and love and care for. You could be part of going with them. Talk to Rick Ellsworth. He'd love to get you involved. Or he'd love to get involved with the team of, of caring for those people. Our, the needy in our community. The Good Samaritan food distribution. We've got our Thanksgiving and Christmas distributions. These are real needs. Get involved. Don't say you care and want to just share the gospel. Do both. Lovingly care and share the gospel. And then we have the enslaved in the sex industry, the alabaster jar indie. And we've got a ministry in the inner city, the walk, discipleship team, going down every other week to to help those in need to, to grow. Folks, there are ways in which we can follow Christ in His service, in His compassion. And if He's our Lord... If he's our master, we'll do so gladly. And we'll do so refreshed in him, rejoicing in him. Because he is risen. Because he's real. And because he's unchanged in these things, we can come and follow him in confidence and strength. Church, let's rise and let's go. Let's go in confidence in this risen Savior and go out lovingly, compassionately to share and proclaim Christ as risen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we close this morning, I pray that we would see you for who you are. The eternal Savior, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And so it is now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before your throne. To Him be all glory and honor and power and majesty and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.